Today's scripture is Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Allison. Well, good morning, Redemption Peoria. Um, my name is Vincent. I am one of the elders here, uh, and I'm certainly pretty excited to be with you this morning. So uh, today's a unique Sunday to where Sean, our lead pastor, is actually preaching the same message up in Flagstaff at Redemption up there. And one of our pastoral residents, Juan Chavez, is down in Tucson at Redemption Church down there preaching the same message as well. So for whatever reason, in God's perfect timing, he thought the state needed more of Redemption Pure to preach at our churches. So uh, you'll, you, you all get a, a text later with uh, room to vote after you listen to every message to see how we all did. No, I'm just playing. Well, if you guys are new uh, to Redemption, Redemption is one church with nine individual congregations all led by a set of elders and a lead pastor uh, for each of those congregations. So even though we are all going through the same text this morning, uh, if you listen to either of them or any of them at any point, you'll notice some differences based on how God is working through uh, those leaders uh, based on the needs of the congregation. And we're no different here. So, excuse me. So again, uh, it'll be cool to go through the text with you this morning and, uh, and see how God wants to work. So uh, before I do that, if you have been here for a little while, maybe you've seen me uh, up here preach before, maybe not. This is time number four for me. And so Sean has told me, Pastor Sean, our, our lead teaching pastor here, has told me that it takes 44 times for someone to preach before they fall into their rhythm of figuring out how they want to do this and uh, you know, their, who they are, who their identity is, and how this comes out. So number four for me, and with my average of preaching once per year, um, <laughs> I'm 44 years old, so by the time I get this figured out, I'll probably uh, not be being asked to, to preach a whole lot. So, um, so bear with me this morning. Uh, I got new stuff going on. I got a stool. I'm sitting down. I don't know how that's going to work out. I got my notes. I'm holding a Bible. I haven't done that before either. So um, lots of new things. Uh, so if it gets all jacked up, just uh, give, me, give me grace. Um, so before we dive into it, let's pray and, and we'll get started. God, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for how you have intentionally and uniquely and very purposely brought everyone into this room this morning for various different reasons, and we're grateful for that. We trust in you. We just pray that your presence be felt, that you guide us through the text, that uh, Vincent is completely removed um, from this, and I just serve as a messenger, and that your words are, are heard, um, even heard by me. God, help me to um, deliver the message that you want to convey. We love you, and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you haven't been here for a little bit, we have been going through the book of Philippians, and 
uh, redemption in general goes through books at a time. We feel the best way to convey who God is is to just go through Scripture verse by verse, and uh, that's how we're going to go through it this morning. So there's a lot to get through. So just to give you some context of where we're at, Philippians um, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, He is in prison, and he is addressing some things to the church, the Christians in Philippi. And so chapter 2 started off last week with uh, Tim taking us through the text, another elder here. And so we see right off the bat in the letter in chapter 2 that Paul is addressing some things based on some things that he's hearing uh, happening in the church. And so as you can imagine, if you've ever been part of a startup business or maybe a nonprofit or, or anything really where there were multiple people trying to move towards the same goal, uh, it can be challenging at times getting everyone on the same page in a sense of unity. So uh, starting a brand new faith uh, back in the day as, as Paul was, um, the challenges were huge to get everyone on the same page, trying to understand what is this faith that we believe, um, even though we all do profess it, a lot of them have different opinions about maybe how to carry that out. So Paul is addressing some of these things that there might be some uh, disagreements, maybe some disunity in the church. And so he wanted to encourage them and address some things uh, in the church. And that's where uh, chapter 2 starts us off. And so Tim took us through some things that uh, were laid out for us that we were going to put on the table this morning. And even just going back a quick recap in in verse 2, chapter 2, complete my joy. Paul's addressing the Christians, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So right off the bat, Paul is addressing unity. We all believe in the same thing. If you guys can complete my joy, I want you to press into this unity, trying to be of the same mind. Not robots, we're not all the same people, but being of the same mind with what we believe. So verse 3, do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So again, we need to be unified. We need to think of others through humility, not putting ourselves first. Picking up again in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we need you to be unified. I need you guys to be humble, thinking of others more highly than yourself. Remember, Jesus is our perfect example of this. He completely emptied himself um, and was obedient. And picking up down in, in verse uh, 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, we're talking about unity. We all believe in the same thing. We're all together in this. Don't just think of yourself. In humility, think of others. And Jesus is your example to the extent he loved you so much, he humbled himself through obedience, he died for you. And because of that, that's where we pick up in verse 12 that starts with a therefore. And every time we see a therefore in scripture, we have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore? Therefore, so going backwards, Paul is putting on the table because of Jesus, because of what he did for us, because in perfect humility and obedience to God, God elevated him and he's our example. Because of that, because those things are true, Let's just dive in and pick up with our text today in uh, verse 12. Therefore, because all of that is true, you guys, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, stop. So, again, this is what we do. We're going to go through the text, scripture, 
uh, verse by verse and, uh, and break it down a little bit. So right off the bat, I lost my place. See, I told you. All right. Uh, work out your own salvation. All right. So what I don't want you guys to hear in working out your own salvation is that you have to work to achieve your salvation. Right? That's not what Paul's talking about here. So, and specifically, the, the Greek in, in here, the, the work out is, is this passive tense of, uh, it's, it's a present tense. It's an ongoing uh, working out to bring about, to do things that will lead you to a conclusion, which I know sounds eerily similar to working out. You have to earn your salvation but the salvation is a part that's a little bit different here that you may not recognize. So we want to break this down. So Paul references in multiple places in Scripture different tenses of speaking about salvation. And so even we see it early on in Ephesians when he's addressing the Ephesians in verse two, chapter or chapter two, verse five. Sorry, I got to stand up. Um, we see he, he's addressing the Christians. You have been saved. So it already happened. It's in the past tense. You have been saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, but to us who are being saved, with the emphasis on being. So we see the past tense, we see the active tense, we're being saved. And then in Romans 13.11, we see um, our salvation is nearer to us now. So Paul is referencing a salvation that we haven't even gotten to yet, right? This future tense. So right off the bat, we see in various places, there's a past tense of being saved, there's a, a current and active tense a present tense of being saved, and then a salvation of this future salvation of something that's to come. So when Paul's talking about here in, uh, in Philippians, working out your own salvation, it's the future salvation that he's talking about. We are currently in this process that we like to call sanctification. It's this process of becoming more holy that even though we had been saved, our energy, our life doesn't stop there. We believe in Jesus. We get to go to heaven, spend eternity with him. Great. But we still have a life to live. And it's in this life that Paul is saying, work out your own salvation. It's the future, perfect, um, uh, full completion of your salvation, which is your glorification that comes in the day of Christ that Paul references uh, a little later in Scripture. So that's what Paul is talking about. This working out is in reference to obedience. Working out your salvation is obedience. And much of the Christian life is about obedience. Yes, grace and love, but obedience. Okay, but not operating, again, out of an insecurity to earn our salvation. That's not what this is. Okay, we are fully secure. The work that is happening inside of us is a work that Christ started. Okay, going back to chapter 1, verse 6, we, we know that um, the, the, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. So he began a good work when he saved you. That work is continuing to happen, and we are called to work it out, um, our salvation, um, with fear and trembling. So, now that we know we're talking about we're not, we don't have to earn our salvation, it's the fear and trembling part that might trip us up now. When I was a kid, um, I would get chores to do, a list of chores every day, or in the summer, and um, they would always have to be done before Dad got home. And because, I don't know, I was a middle kid and loved doing chores uh, and loved rebelling, I never did my chores before Dad got home. And so as I'm playing video games, messing around, I hear the garage door go up, and my chores weren't done, and there was some fear and trembling that went, came, and came over me, right? It was a fear of punishment because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. That's not what Paul's talking about here, okay? Fear and trembling is not a fear of, of punishment from God. This fear and trembling, and, and the verbiage that's used is in reference to this awe and astonishment that Luke uses in chapter 5, right? It's this 
wonder and amazement and sheer respect and reverence for God that he is living inside of us and he has saved us. It's out of that respect and awe that we are moved to be obedient. I love how someone put it, this fear and trembling, when it's used, it's used a couple times, this phrasing in the Bible, that it refers to a natural anxiety of not being able to do everything that is asked of you. But you're still press on to do it. See, it's not a fear of being punished. It's a natural anxiety of not being able to do everything that is being asked of you. And if you see the humility just wrapped through that, that thread, you acknowledge that you can't do this on your own. There's no way you're going to be able to meet the standard, the perfect standard of Jesus. It's impossible. So even in this fear and trembling, as you're working out your salvation, it's this acknowledgement that I can't do this on my own. It's overwhelming to think about what's being asked of me, but out of sheer reverence for God, I still press on to do it. Now, I know as Christians, we, are, we hear these, these phrases like, oh, God's not going to give me more than I can handle. We throw those terms out a lot. Just for, It's garbage. Don't say that. One, it's not biblical, and it's not true. The gospel is, is the opposite of that. God is absolutely going to give you things that you can't handle. Intentionally overwhelm you so that it breaks you and, and causes you to, uh, out of sheer just desperation and, and no other option, to fall at the feet of Jesus because you need him. So in humility, in full reverence and awe for God, work out your salvation with fear and trembling but you full reliance that you need him. There was a time that Diane and I were out to dinner, and um, there was a, a, a table, a lady. She was, I don't know how old she was, but she had three young boys just sitting with her, and it looked completely miserable. I have no idea what their story was, but Diane and I were in a booth next to it, or next to them, and I look at them, and I, I, I felt, and I know with clear as day, that God asked me to engage in this family. I felt heartbroken for, I don't know if the dad left, the boys were on their iPads, no one was talking, the mom looked miserable, and I just felt like they needed a hug. Um, I would love to tell you that I engaged in that, in that family, um, but I didn't. Completely dropped the ball. I told Diana after they left what was going on inside of me, and I just started crying um, because I wasn't obedient at all. It was overwhelming for me to think about what I was supposed to do in that moment. But because of that natural anxiety to know I couldn't do it out of fear and trembling of reverence and awe for God, I left there encouraged to keep trying. And that's what God's calling us to do. So let's keep going. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When I read that, I always want to add, it's for his good pleasure, not for your personal comfort. Okay? God is working in you. Remember, he's the one who started the good work in you, and he is working in you now, not for your good pleasure, not according to your will, but for his will and uh, his good pleasure. And the cool thing, there, there's freedom in knowing that. It's not about you. The performance, the burden of performance has been removed from you in your obedience. It's God is the one who's doing that, which is great. It's encouraging. There are things that you're going to love about it, and there's going to be things that you just are confused and don't know. Your obedience is going to take you into situations that are going to be overwhelming. You may not know what, what's going on. You may not know how to react to it. You may be completely overwhelmed and broken. But we turn back to God and look at his promises. Look at Romans 8. He takes us through 8, uh, 8 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. As we are processing our life and going through some of these things, God is, is with us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't even know how to pray for as we ought. 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts, he who knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even as we're going through this, even in our obedience, things are happening around us. We don't even know what to do. We are completely debilitated in our weakness, and we don't even know how to pray. But look at what comes next in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. That means good and bad. All things are working together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a big deal. When we're in the midst of craziness and we don't know what's going on or what's happening, we don't even know what to pray, find rest and comfort that it's Christ working in you. And even in the good times and the bad times and the challenges, all of these things are working together for your good. Now the question is, where we get tripped up as Christians, is what does that good mean? A lot of times we, our flesh just like to think the good is an amazing circumstantial reality that's just going to bring joy and happiness to our life. But that's not necessarily what God is talking about. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So right off the bat, part of this goodness is we're being conformed to the image of his son. That is a good thing. This is working out your salvation. This is that uh, sanctification process that we talked about in your obedience, you're working through this. You're, you're, you're in your obedience, you're working out your salvation. And in this process, he's moving us towards the perfect image of his son. That is good for you. But it may not be the way that you want it to work. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, oh, I skipped the verse, sorry. Back to uh, 29. He foreknew he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers, he being Jesus. And this goes back to uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Jesus, the name of, of all names, will be acknowledged by every tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee will bow. That's a good thing. This is Jesus being the firstborn among many brothers. That's a good thing. All these things are working. You're being made more in his image. Jesus is being elevated. We're working towards that. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You're being, you're going to be glorified in the day of Christ. That's your future, perfect redemption, salvation. It's all going to come to a head when Christ returns. You will be glorified. So the, our time on earth, as we're working out our salvation, we're being conformed to his image. Through these, all of these things, good and bad, this is what's happening for your good. And it is good but the circumstance you may find yourself in may be a little tough. But it's through this fear and trembling, this awe and wonder, complete removal of selfish pride and all humility and gratitude towards the Lord, hopefully that will help us move into a life of, of daily obedience. So what's your heart, heart posture as you're working out your salvation? Well, Paul takes us through it. Let's keep going. Do all things, remember, all things, good and bad, all things is all things, without grumbling or disputing. How's your heart posture as you're carrying out your obedience? John MacArthur has this cool quote, this is the attitude in which you work out your salvation. It is an obedience without complaint. You don't complain about what God calls you to do. You don't complain about what he asks you to do. You don't complain about the circumstances in which he asks you to do it. Who are you to complain in view of your sins? It is by grace that you are not consumed, and complaining is in itself a wicked, proud sin. Now, if any of you know John MacArthur, he's 
never been accused of being uh, gentle and not direct with some of his words. Uh, but how true is that? It's a big deal. Look what we're, let's keep going in, in verse 15. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. These are strong words from Paul. I mean, look at what he's saying. Don't complain and don't grumble so that you can be children of God, as if to suggest if you do this, you won't be children of God. Do this so you can be innocent, because if you do complain, you won't be innocent. You will have a blemish. Paul is putting on the table some pretty strong stuff, but he's actually going back to Scripture in the Old Testament when the Israelites were in the wilderness, and all they were doing was complaining and grumbling. They were against Moses, and in their obedience, that's, they were the opposite of what Paul's putting on the table. And look at Deuteronomy 32.5. They, the Israelites, have dealt corruptly with him, with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul is suggesting that in our grumbling, in our murmuring, our, our complaining under our breath, our, our talking behind people's backs, uh, the leaders, um, in our obedience, we don't have a good attitude about this. And Paul is saying, look, we're going to be just like the Israelites. Don't be like the Israelites so that you can be children of God. It's a big deal. If you remember a few weeks back when Sean was taking us through um, chapter 1, verse 27, he suggested that everything in Philippians goes back to 127, living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Complaining and grumbling is hardly a life worthy of the gospel, in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's not the gospel. And if we can pull this off, if we as Christians can figure out how to be unified, how to do this without grumbling, look where Paul takes us in in verse 15. We will shine as lights in the world. Okay? We will shine as lights in the world amidst the darkness. If we can just do things so simple of not thinking of ourselves higher than we ought, thinking of others first, and do these things without complaining or grumbling, we will shine. Remember, in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, God, or Jesus says, we are the light. He doesn't say, if you do these things, you will be the light. He says, you are the light. And as you are the light, you don't put that light under a bowl to dim it. You put it on a stand so that it can shine. And in our grumbling, in our complaining, in our lack of humility, in our pride, it's muting that light. It hinders the gospel as we go through life complaining and grumbling about what we're being asked to do. Now, are we never allowed to be frustrated? Are we never allowed to uh, be confused and cry out to the Lord and complain about stuff? Uh, Yeah, you can do that. The Bible gives us some context as to how to do that. Just sucking it up is not the gospel, right? So that's not uh, being put on the table for you. However, we could probably argue there are times when you just got to do it. You may not like it, but you just got to do it, but you still don't complain about it. But you can cry out to the Lord. You guys remember a few months ago, Tyler was here going through Psalm 88, and all that was was a desperate cry out to the Lord in pain and anguish. There's a section of Psalms that's called the Book of Laments, which just means crying out to the Lord in your grief. There's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. That's all it is, is complaining and, and crying out to the Lord. But there's 
there's a difference in, in what this looks like. Let's look at Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 6, or verse 4 through 6. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Do you see his grief? My, my bones have been broken. My skin is wasting away. And he's just enveloped in bitterness. Let's keep going. Verse 17, chapter 3. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And this is rough. This is hard to read. Um, Jeremiah is thought to be the author of Lamentations, and you just feel the pain of what his life is to where he has forgotten what happiness is. But, verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. There's a difference between complaining and crying out to the Lord that's rooted in the Lord and comes back to the Lord versus a faithless complaining that really just develops a woe is me attitude, a victimhood mentality. That's what we don't want. That's what we can't do. That is not in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are not victims. Again, who are we to complain a sinner with what's going on in our circumstances. Ultimately, as we continue to complain and develop this victimhood mentality, what we're really saying is God got it wrong. Something is going on in my life that shouldn't be, and I'm going to complain about it. Victimhood mentality suggests that God got it wrong. And if you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe that all things work together for good, but you develop this victimhood mentality, this woe-is-me lifestyle... You're pressing up against that truth. That's not a manner worthy of the gospel. But obedience is not something that guarantees you'll have a comfortable life. Josh Miles, our worship pastor, we were out golfing. Uh, at one point, we were driving back from golf, and we were talking about spiritual things, as we always talk about. Um, no, but for whatever reason, we were talking about something, and Josh said something that I thought was so good and so true. He said, look, Obedience doesn't lead to prosperity. If anything, it calls you to die. <laughs> what? What I miss? Oh, the quote up there? Yeah, he loved that. <laughs> so in all his humility, make sure he doesn't uh, get conflated with that. Um, so, so yeah, it, it was super cool that he said that, and it was, yeah, it stuck with me, and I definitely wanted to use it in my sermon. Um, but it's true. Obedience is what led Jesus to death. Obedience does not guarantee prosperity at all. But in your obedience, in your complaining, in your frustration, it has to circle back to the Lord. Lamentations, Jeremiah continues to give us an example of what this would look like. In verse 37, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord had commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Again, do we believe this? Do we believe that all things, good and bad, God is in control of? Nothing can even happen unless he commanded it. That should have an impact on us in our obedience. Verse 39, why should a living man complain 
a man about the punishment of his sins. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. So, so the end there, that's, that's the key. Let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. So as we're returning to the Lord, trying to understand our circumstance and what is happening, let us return to the Lord and examine our ways. Well, what does that look like? Some people in our life, I don't know, years ago, I don't know how many years ago, I don't even remember who it was, so if you're in this room, forgive me that I can't give you credit for this, but as we are examining ourselves, uh, this question was put in front of us, well, what is God trying to reveal in you? What is God doing? What is he trying to expose in you? Some of you guys know that Diana and I were called into foster care adoption community. At, at one point, we've shared some of our, our joys and some of the, uh, the challenges that we've experienced in that. And when we first entered into that space, um, it was rough. It, it was really, really, really rough. And so um, there were times that I'm ashamed to admit that um, we were feeling certain ways about it, um, but we knew we had to come back to the Lord. Because as we look at these sweet boys that God so graciously put into our home, um, something just wasn't making sense, right? Um, and so what was happening? And so in the midst of that challenge, in the midst of our pain, tons of tears and crying out, we had to examine ourselves. What is God trying to reveal in us? And the cool part about asking God to do something uh, that's centered on him is that he usually does it. So in this revelation, or in this process of revealing things, uh, it was brutal. There's no other way to say it. God heard our voice and said, you want to know what I'm trying to reveal in you? Let me show it. And he did. I used to think I wasn't a selfish person until God showed me how selfish I was. I used to think I didn't have a ton of pride, but as I had two young boys that I couldn't control at all, my pride was exposed pretty hardcore. How much I liked to control things was, was exposed. What I thought sacrifice meant in my life was exposed. And it just broke us down. It broke us down so hard. But there's still joy in that because of the things that were revealed couldn't have happened unless we went through some of that pain. And as we're being conformed in his image, in this process of sanctification, as we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we're grateful for that process to have gone through so that we can move a little bit closer to the image of God. And so I love my, my boys for several different reasons. I got my eight-year-old Jaden in here this morning, which is great. Um, and one of the things I'm the most thankful for is how God has used him specifically to conform me more into the image of, of Jesus. It's pretty cool. So we have to look at all of these things. We continue in, in verse 17. Uh, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and joy, uh, rejoice with me. So Paul is saying, even if you're called into martyrdom, even if your circumstance, what you're being asked to do and, and through your faithful obedience brings you to death, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. It's tough. I know it's tough. Um, because we're also putting on the table in that rejoicing. What I don't want you to hear is that you need to develop this attitude of an unrealistic human and suggest that in the midst of your sheer pain and hellish circumstances that you have to put on this smile and act like everything is okay. That's not what we're saying. You need safe, safe spaces 
to cry out, and you need to be real. That's a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel doesn't suggest you have to go through life knowing or thinking everything's perfect despite your circumstance. It's the evidence that you can't get through life unless you cling to Jesus and rejoice that you have the opportunity to even do that. So let's keep going. Uh, Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I I too may be cheered by news of him, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. So, you see the, the, the change there? So, it's subtle, but it's important. Paul is putting on the table Timothy. There's no one like him, and he generally is concerned for other people, right? And then in verse 21, he says, most people, they all seek their own interests. And early on in chapter 2, don't seek your own interests, seek those of others. But that's not what... He says here, they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. It would have been easy to say, don't think of your own interests, seek the interests of others, but he doesn't say that. He puts serving Jesus in there. Serving others and thinking of others is serving Jesus. That's what Jesus wants. When you're out there talking about, oh, I'm I'm doing this for Jesus and I'm going to serve Jesus, you need to be serving people. That's what Jesus wants. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as, uh, I, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul's putting on the table, we need to be unified, we need to be humble, we need to think of others more highly than ourselves, and we need to be obedient and do what Christ is asking us to do. And Paul is putting these two men on the table. This is what that looks like, you guys. I'm going to send them back to you because these two guys are the examples that I want you to follow. There's no one like Timothy. He's only focused on you guys. Epaphroditus was so not focused on him that he almost died in his obedience to you. And his heart posture was thinking of the church in Philippi to the point he was distressed. And the word distressed in this text, there's three different variations of this word. And this variation of this word distress that Epaphroditus was feeling is the same distress that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat blood. That's the level of anxiety that Epaphroditus was having out of concern for the Philippians who were thinking he may be dead. And what does Paul tell us to do with these, the, he, these guys? Verse 29, he says to honor these men. Which is a big deal because we live in a culture where honoring humble, obedient, other-centered servants is not what we elevate in our culture. We don't necessarily even do it in our church. Our culture is easy. I mean, we look at who we elevate to be famous people in our culture. Um, 
there's a palpable level of narcissism in most of those people that we elevate, which is not the gospel. Because someone can jump really high or throw a fastball really hard, we elevate them in our culture. And it's not just sports. It could be business leaders or good speakers or someone who wrote a lot of books. But we do that in our church as well. Who do we elevate in our church? Someone who's a good orator, someone who has written a ton of books or has uh, a lot of cool sayings. We elevate those people in our, in our church. But Paul is saying, these are the men you should be elevating. Honor these men. Our congregation is filled with men and women who have an others-centered, genuine lack of pride and desire to just serve our church. And we don't do a great job of it, and it's something that we need to continuously press into to honor such men. These are our examples. Dennis Prager has uh, a cool quote I've, I've always liked when I, when I heard him say it. He says, famous people are, are the, the famous are rarely great, and the great are rarely famous. And it's true. It's true. I mean, it's not, you know, 100% true in, in each way, I mean, with extremes, but an extreme to prove a point, I think, is valid. Most of the people that are famous that we elevate aren't great people. They're just not. And God is telling us, this is what we should value in people. Humble, obedient, others-centered servitude. Not how great their life is. Are we willing to not just honor those men, but are we willing to do that ourselves? Are we willing to be obedient and do what God's asking us to do? And as you think about that question, a natural response to that question might be, well, how the heck do I know of what God wants me to do? How do I know that God is asking me? Well, that's a tough one. And individually, I want to encourage you to figure that out, right? So several years ago, I don't know when, but in the context of thinking these people that we elevate in our culture, who are great and who are successful, and in the business world, I see it all the time, what we put up as success, I had to start asking myself, well, how would I define success? And for me, this isn't for everyone, but for me, the way I process success is, do I hear God's voice? Have I been able to attach to understanding how God communicates with me? And then do I have the guts to do what he's asking? That's success to me. I didn't have success when I was in that restaurant and I failed to engage that lady, but I, I knew what God's voice was for sure. So for you, do you know how God's communicating with you? It could be through prayer, it could be through the word, it could be through an audible voice. Maybe it's this inner voice that you've been able to decipher between yourself and God. Maybe it's all the above. It could be signs that you see. Here's the danger with signs that you see is that's usually our flinch as Christians to figure out what God wants us to do, right? What do we say? Oh, God, please just open this door. If you open it, I'll go through it. Oh, if you just close that door, I'll know that you don't want me to to go down that road. That's a dangerous place to rest in figuring out if God wants you to do something. Gideon did it. If you guys remember Gideon's fleece, there's a story in the Bible, if you're not familiar with it, where God asked Gideon to do something, and he was like, well... How about, I'll do it, God, if I'm going to put this fleece out, and if it's wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know it's you and I'll do it. Even though previously God says, don't test God. But God, he, he did it. But that still wasn't good enough. So then Gideon was like, ah, shoot. Um, well, how about this? How about the fleece is dry and the ground is wet? 
then I'll do it. So, of course, God met the challenge and Gideon reluctantly. That, Gideon's fleece is not uh, a good example of a mature faith. But that's what we do, right? That's what we do when we say, oh, God closed this door, then I'll know what to do. Meanwhile, we just stand paralyzed, not doing anything, looking for these signs. Well, God may not be working that way in you at that moment. There was a time, oh, gosh, I don't even know how long ago, but um, there was an opportunity put in front of me to um, open another restaurant. And um, Diane and I, we owned a restaurant back in the day after we got married, and it ended in disaster. So um, when I told Diana, hey, I think we should open another restaurant, uh, it, didn't, it didn't go over very well. <laughs> and so what we decided to do, or what I decided to do was, well, if it happens, there's so many insurmountable obstacles in the way. So if some of those obstacles start to get removed, then I'll know this is from God. And that's what happened. Oh, babe, 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 look, you remember how that impossible first step, there was no way that was going to happen. Well, it just happened. So that means we're going to continue on this road. And we did. And let's say there's 10 steps in this road. So now I'm like all in. And obstacle after obstacle kept getting removed. And we just needed that last obstacle to go. And it didn't go. But I was so certain that God wanted me to open a restaurant because he kept removing these obstacles. But that's not what, was, that's not what happened. And it was a challenge. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it. Ultimately, I had to check my motives at the door. My motives were not aligned with what God wanted. And so when we talk about asking God to reveal what is going on inside of you, to reveal some things in this refining process, it helped us adopt this for now language that I would put in front of you as you go through uh, life and as you're working out your obedience to try to adopt this for now language or trajectory language and not destination language. Because what we do a lot, what I did, certainly in that restaurant example, is when God asked me to do something, I immediately know what the end game is. Oh, I know where this is going. You want me to take this step. You remove that obstacle so I can open a restaurant. But that's not at all what God had going on. So the more I can eliminate my mind from thinking about the destination and think about the trajectory, it's helped me in my freedom to hear God more clearly and accept what's happening for now. I don't know where this is going, but I know for a fact God is asking me to do this, and I'm going to go. And I'm going to go until he tells me to turn left. No one I've ever met at age whatever, 70, 80, 90, at the end of life, saying, hey, um, you landed in a pretty good spot. Did the path to get you here, is that how you thought it was going to go? No one has ever said yes. It got to a point where Diana and I now, it's like, man, if I dream it, if I think it, it's guaranteed not to happen. (laughs) So it's like, ah, shoot. But the cool thing is that if God truly is sovereign and his plan is better for you, if Proverbs 16, 9 is true, that he determines your steps, Acts 17 says that he has determined your place and time and has outlined the boundaries of your dwelling places. If God is truly in control, then whatever it is I thought of in my brain, what God has in store for me is better than that. If you're a non a believer in here, some of this stuff might sound super weird, may not make sense. And as I'm talking about Christians being humble and not thinking of themselves, there's a decent chance you've interacted with some of us and you didn't experience that. You experienced the opposite. And for that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it 
as a church, I'm sorry that as Christians, we haven't done a great job as a whole of living a life worthy of the gospel. And what I don't want you to hear, if you're a non-believer, that you have to work for your salvation. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. It's, it's in response to what God has done for us, the fact that we don't deserve it. It's out of that response, out of gratitude, to live a life of obedience and humble obedience. The beauty is our obedience, destination language, remove that. God is the one performing. The pressure from us to perform is removed. And there's freedom in that. It's a beautiful thing. So wrapping up, I'll kind of end on this. A friend of mine uh, had, would always say this, this Christian life is tough. You know, not thinking of yourselves, it's, it's, it's really tough. Um, you can't do it all the time. The problem with the Christian life is that it's so daily. <laughs> right? It's, it's so hourly and minute by minute. Because one, one minute you're going to be like, I got this down. I just smoked it. It's great. And then an hour later, you're like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. <laughs> Let that just press you back to the feet of Jesus. That's where we need the rest. And lastly, I'll end you with this quote from C.S. Lewis. Obedience is the road to freedom. Humility is the road to pleasure. Unity, the road to personality. It's true. Obedient isn't a list of rules that are going to prevent you from getting what you want. Obedience is the road to freedom thinking of others more highly than yourselves. And that humility will give you a pleasure that um, it's hard to describe. It's the sweetness of the cross, the beauty of Jesus, and how much he loves us. So let me pray. God, I'm grateful for this morning. I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful for how much you love us. Just in the, the face of our sin and our disobedience, you still love us. We haven't done anything to deserve it, and you continue to pour out on us way more than what we need, and we're grateful for that. God, help us to hear these words, not feeling the pressure of performing, but the freedom that we have in you, knowing that it's because of you that you're working in us. You're using us as a, as a means to spread the gospel, to enable others to see your son, Jesus. God, help us in full humility and removal of ourself and our selfish pride and ambition, allow ourselves to be used by you, to be obedient, so that you get the glory and others can see you more clearly. God, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.